0: Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout and get a real history education at 25% off. Is the United States government too anti-democratic? Well, Jamel Bowie thinks so, and we'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, mcclanahan.com. Why you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Use that coupon code podcast, get 25% off all classes. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can go to Spotify for podcasters, throw a few pennies my way that way, or click on the heart button under the video if you're watching on YouTube, the super thanks button. It's a great way to support the show financially. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get one of my books. Christmas is coming up. They make great gifts. But as always, you can painlessly support it by rate, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can and send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, let's talk about Jamel Bowie and the anti-democratic United States Constitution. Now, this is something the left has talked about for a very long time. That the Constitution creates an environment, a political environment, that's anti-democratic. And if they just had more majoritarian rule, things would be okay. Now, full disclosure, When I wrote nine presidents who screwed up America, I actually proposed several amendments that would affect the executive branch that reduced the threshold for, say, overriding the president's veto or uh, impeaching the president. I thought we should reduce the threshold for that, take it down to 60 percent instead of 67 percent, so three-fifths of the Congress should be required to, say, impeach the president uh, rather than two-thirds. So I thought three-fifths was a better situation. You need 60 out of 100 senators then to impeach a president. You need 60 out of 100 senators, for example, to override a veto or of the House of Representatives rather than the much more difficult threshold that's contained in the Constitution. I thought that these things were a necessary thing. Because what's happened is we've got an executive government. An executive government is dangerous government because, well, it's primarily unconstitutional. I also had uh, a proposed amendments that would have limited the president's power uh, to issue executive orders, uh, executive agreements, all kinds of things. Congress should be legislating, not the president. I also made it much more, uh, in one of my amendments, would have made it easier to impeach the president because it would have actually outlined things like negligence, abuse of power. These things would have been impeachable offenses. So right now, there would have been a lot of Republicans who had been very upset about those proposed, uh, proposed changes because they think, well, the Democrats would have used it to get Trump. Well, you know, else could have been... It's Joe Biden, right? I mean, Joe Biden does these exact same things. The point of the book was that we've had presidents... For the last hundred years who have done all of this stuff. 150 years who have done all of this stuff. We've had presidents who have abused power, negligence, perfidy, all those things. And uh, they've been able to skirt through. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are a symptom of the disease of the executive office, which is executive government. It is a symptom. They are symptoms of the disease. Which is why we should look to curtail the power of the executive branch. Now, interestingly enough, in my latest class at McClanahan Academy, The Age of Jackson, I talk about a particular book that argues the exact opposite position during that period of time. And this person's a conservative. He thinks the real threat is not executive government, but but legislate, the legislature, I right? think the Congress. They're the real threat, not the president, because the president is a singular individual and you can pinpoint when the president is doing something wrong, but you can't for Congress. You can't really get rid of Congress wholesale, whole cloth, right? You got to vote different people out at different times, and it may not turn over. All right, so we have that position. Then we also have the concurrent majority, the Calhounian position, was that we need supermajorities to get any legislation passed, that the states themselves could serve as a veto of Congress on unconstitutional power. You see, Calhoun was concerned about the expansion of executive power. He was also concerned about the expansion of congressional power. and That's where the states came in, of federal power in general. So there had to be some kind of check on the federal government when it went out and passed unconstitutional legislation. The president signed unconstitutional legislation. The Supreme Court upheld unconstitutional legislation. And then what do you do? Well, there has to be some kind of check for that. We get this stuff all the time. So Calhoun's position was, well, we can have a state, essentially, veto it for the entire rest of the United States. So we can only have super majorities. If everything, or you could have, say, two or three states. You could have a very small minority say, well, if this is unconstitutional, we can't do it. So you're going to have to have major consensus to get things done. Now, you know who doesn't like that? Jamel Bowie. Jamel Bowie, who I've talked about on this show many times, actually writes the best political column at the New York Times. When I say the best, the most thought-provoking... They're the most uh, historically researched. Uh, They are the best that the left has to offer at the New York Times. They're really bad sometimes. Sometimes Bowie stumbles on something where he's right. And typically it's if he thinks that the position is going to work well for the left. For example, uh, he's against the Supreme Court right now. He's against the federal courts. Well, because he thinks the Republicans control the federal courts, even though we all know that they're not going to do everything he says they're going to do. He had all the fear-mongering about the independent state legislature doctrine. We're going to get this. The Republicans are going to shove this down their throat. And then, of course, you have Kavanaugh and Roberts side with the left. That's going to happen a lot of times. So, Jamel Bowie will uh, fear-monger, and then nothing that he says really ever comes to fruition. But he is against federal courts, and I agree. The federal courts are a problem. Now, would he be against federal courts if they were doing what he wanted? Well, no. He's dead silent. Really, after the Supreme Court made that ruling, he didn't say a word. Well, because the federal courts did what he wanted. So, Bowie is very inconsistent. Uh, He's not someone that uh, has a principled stand for, say, anti-majoritarianism or anti-authoritarianism because he believes in it when it works for him. That's his problem. But he does write thought-provoking pieces at the New York Times. So I want to get into this one because this one's very interesting. The title is, What if the Framers got something critically wrong? Or something critical wrong. is not critically, but something critical wrong. And this is where he says there's too much anti-majoritarianism in the United States Constitution. That was actually a selling point. The federal government had limited power. See, this is where he misses it all. The federal government had defined enumerated, limited powers and so these checks and balances were there to ensure that the federal government didn't go beyond those enumerated, defined, limited powers. That's the whole point. The problem is Jebel Bowie doesn't like that when he thinks it's going to go against him, when he thinks it's the majority. So Calhoun would actually ask this question, what is a majority? Is it a simple numerical majority? And in fact, what Bowie generally gives you in these examples is basically a bare majority. Slightly over 50%, but not a substantial majority. Even 57 out of 100 isn't a substantial majority. That's a, That's a pretty close majority. Seven people, seven people, or eight people over a majority. So if you have a room of 100 people, 57 people can plunder the other 43. Is that fair? I mean, these are questions he doesn't actually ask. Calhoun's position would be, well, you got to have nearly 100% to make this work. Now, I could see if there's an abuse of power that you can lower the threshold, and that's where he gets into impeachment. So let me get into the piece. He says, here are three instances in American history, out of many, when the rules of our system preserved a failed or suboptimal status quo against the views and the votes of a majority of Americans and their representatives. Failed or suboptimal. Now, that term, suboptimal, meaning it doesn't fit with what he wants. That's suboptimal. That's what that means. I don't agree with the outcome. So that's suboptimal. Failed would be, well, I I mean, the whole system doesn't work, right? So, let's get into his three examples. In 2021, 232 members of the House of Representatives voted to impeach President Donald Trump for his role in summoning and provoking the mob that attacked and ransacked the United States Capitol on January 6th. So, 232. There are 435 members of Congress. That is a slim majority, numerical majority, slim. Barely a majority. And right now, look, if the House impeached Joe Biden, it would be probably less than this. It would be maybe one or two over the majority. That would be it. It would be a very slim majority. Now, we know there's some information coming out. We know all this. All the data and all the things that are collected about these people that were in Washington on January 6th and the things that were done. There has been a concerted effort. Theater, political theater, to make this more than what it was. We know no police officers were killed that day, even though they run around still saying this. You don't hear it as much anymore because they've been called out on it so many times. We know the only person that was killed was actually one of the protesters by a police officer who never was convicted for that. And we know that the general government has circled the wagons. Even some Republicans have circled the wagons around this. You know, Pierre Delecto and others... Uh, We also know that Trump really didn't incite anything. Uh, I mean, Democrats went and occupied state houses all throughout the United States. And Trump didn't incite people to go in and commit violence or anything else. We know the Capitol Police have actually potentially, or there's actually potential, allegedly, I'll say allegedly, we know there are people that were involved that might have lied under oath and covered some things up. So we know some of this allegedly happened. Again, I have to be careful, that's allegedly, until all this stuff comes out in a court of law. And we know there are political prosecutions going on. This is happening. So for Bowie to stand out and say this, that 232 people did this, it, this is actually an indictment of democracy. An indictment of democracy in this particular case, because I mean, to attach that to Trump is a little bit tenuous. But then, not long after, 57 members of the Senate voted to convict Trump. Now, I said in my book, we should have a three-fifths. That would still fall short. You do need a little bit larger than a simple numerical majority for impeachment. Because if you just have a numerical majority, you're going to get this used as a political weapon constantly. It will be a political weapon. You really need strong evidence. Now, if it was only 60%, Maybe you would have gotten three more senators from the Republican side to vote to convict Trump. I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. It was only 60% instead of 67%. They needed three instead of 10 I don't know what would have happened. He says, but because the Constitution demands a two-thirds majority for conviction in an impeachment trial, the considered decision of a substantial majority of Congress, substantial majority, seven people, that's a substantial majority, in the Senate, and what? 16 people in the House. So you're talking about a look at how he look how he phrases the language. A substantial majority. 23 people out of 535. That's a substantial majority. 23 people. This is what Bowie's saying. Now most unthink, people think, oh, oh, this sounds. They don't really know what the majority would be. It's about 23 people. It's not a substantial majority. That's a slim majority. Not enough. Backed by a substantial majority of the public. What is that? What is a substantial majority? There was actually a a book that was written a while back about using terms like substantial majority, um, most, many, using these terms in historical analysis because they're just thrown around without any kind of data to back them up. He's saying a substantial majority of the public. How do we know what, what was the substantial majority of the public? What was that? Do we know this for? I mean, do we know this for a fact? Do we poll everybody in the United States that can vote and say, "Well, this is a substantial majority"? Well, I'm here. We have a representative system. You can't all have to do that. We have these representatives. There, yeah, partisan representatives. He's saying this substantial majority was thwarted by the veto of self-interested partisan minority. Well, what about the self-interested partisan majority? Because that's what they were—a self-interested partisan majority. So, majoritarian government is isn't necessarily good government either. He's missing the whole point. His next example. A couple of generations earlier, in 1971 and 1972, a vast majority of members of Congress, 354 in the House and 84 in the Senate, voted to pass the Equal Rights Amendment and send it to the states. 354 in the House. So these are much larger majorities. Right, 354 in the House? I mean, that's that's a pretty sizable majority. 84 in the Senate, 84%? That's a big majority. He's not wrong about this. That is a vast majority. So that's a subside. that's a sizable majority. Most Americans, according to the surveys at the time, wanted to make the ERA the twenty seventh amendment of the Constitution. Most Americans, a very slim majority. When he says most, it's slim. And within five years of passage in Washington, legislatures in 35 states, a majority of the nation's legislatures, right? So 35 out of 50 had voted for ratification. But 35 states was three short of the three, three fourths needed for the amendment to succeed. By the time the deadline for ratifying the ERA came in 1982, the amendment was essentially dead in the water. Now, why did the founding generation make it hard to amend the Constitution? Because they were concerned, they were concerned that uh, there would be willy-nilly amendments added, and these willy-nilly amendments would would destroy the powers of the states. Essentially, there's nothing wrong with requiring supermajorities to actually amend the Constitution. Nothing wrong with it at all. Now, again, you might have libertarians, even libertarians would say, "Well, this is too hard." You drop that threshold down. Maybe have it three fifths. Maybe sixty states. Uh, out of, I'm sorry. Out of, out of, out of instead of three fourths, three fifths. Well, that's going to drop that down. The ERA would have actually been ratified at that point if you had three fifths. But fifteen states decided that the amendment was not worth the time, and what it would have done was dangerous, and it would have been uh, something that would have expanded, unconst- expanded not unconstitutionally at that point, but expanded federal power to a point where it was dangerous, and they blocked it. Now, what's happened? I mean, what Jabel Bowie doesn't tell you, the other side of the story, is that virtually everything they wanted out of the ERA has been done by the federal courts <laughs> through the 14th Amendment. So, even though the ERA didn't pass, wasn't ratified, the federal courts have done it. Almost everything they've done Almost everything they wanted in the ERA, they've gotten through the federal court system. He doesn't mention that because that would work against his argument that we need to downsize or downplay the power of the federal courts. Because he's gotten exactly what he wanted out of that. So there you go. Decades before that, in 1922, the dire anti-lynching bill passed the House 230-119. to It was supported by President Warren G. Harding, a Republican, as well as a large Republican majority in the Senate. But that majority was not large enough to overcome a Democratic filibuster spearheaded by Jim Crow lawmakers from the South. And the bill died before it could come to a vote. It would take a full century after the death of the Dyer Bill for Congress to pass and the President to sign an anti-lynching bill into law. It would take a full century. So, 2022. Because, you know, lynchings are all over the place in the United States right now. Now, um, let me let me say this about a lynching bill and I've said this before on this podcast there's no power in the Congress to pass this kind of legislation is lynching awful? absolutely should it be illegal? definitely but there's no federal power to do it there's no enumerated power for the Congress to do this it's not one of the things a Congress can make a crime that's the whole point We have so many redundant federal crimes. States, I mean, states, murder is already a state issue. If somebody is not given due process and they're murdered, that's murder. You can't do that. Now, of course, people weren't being convicted, north and south. In fact, one of the most famous images of a lynching uh, took place in Indiana. Not the south, but Indiana. I mean, these things were going on all over the United States. Uh, there was a terrible lynching in the uh, early 20th century, not right about the time of the Dyer Bill that took place in Nebraska. Though, I think it was Will Brown, Will Brown lynching in Nebraska. I mean, you had some horrible things happening, not just in the South, but all over the United States. And these things are bad. But the problem is the federal government has no power to pass this kind of legislation. It's unconstitutional. Now, he's complaining about the filibuster. We basically don't have the filibuster anymore. The filibuster has almost been killed. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to have a filibuster, that you don't just get a majority in the Senate. Nothing there. At all. Uh, I mean, it's parliamentary procedures is what they're doing at that point. And it's something that was arbitrary. So, I mean, they've basically killed that. The Senate has basically killed the filibuster at this point. So what he's complaining about isn't even going to be the case anymore. Nine times out of ten. Then he says, The American political system, with its federalism, bicameralism, and separation of powers, consists of overlapping majoritarian and counter-majoritarian institutions designed to promote stability and continuity, at the expense of popular government. Now sit there. L- look at what he said. Federalism, bicameralism, and separation of powers. Almost like these are pejorative. This is, these are nasty things. We need just simple, unicameral, majoritarian, 50% plus one rule. Not content to build structural impediments to change, the framers of the Constitution also insisted on supermajority thresholds for a number of key actions. Executive and judicial impeachment. Well, I mean, again, I, I think that they should lower that to 60% through an amendment. Ratification of foreign treaties and the passage and ratification of constitutional amendments. Again, foreign treaties should come down to 60%. The amendment process, I still think, should be higher. But, um, because you can get all kinds of nut job things that would be proposed to the Constitution at this point. The Constitution also allows for the legislatures to make its own rules regarding its conduct, and both chambers of Congress have at different points in their histories adopted de facto supermajority rules for passing legislation. Oh my gosh, well who would... I mean, who's going to make the rules for them if they don't make their own rules? That is a question. Who makes them then? Would the President make them? Would the, I mean, who makes this stuff? Americans are so accustomed and alco to these... Supermajority rules that they often treat their value as self-evident, a natural and necessary part of American constitutionalism. No, we don't want to subject our every political decision to simple majority rule. Yes, we want to raise the highest possible barrier to removing the president or changing the rules of the government. Well, what is that then? He says all these things are arbitrary. So what's the highest possible barrier? What would that number be? He doesn't really give you a, a number. He just says the highest possible barrier. So what would that be? Bowie complains and then doesn't really give you a a number. Defenses of supermajority rules tend to rest on claims related to what appears to be common sense. The argument goes like this: supermajority rules stabilize our political institutions, encourage deliberation, secure consensus for change, and protect minorities from the tyranny of overbearing majorities. But as the book political as the I'm sorry, as the political theorist Melissa Schwartzberg argues in her 2014 book Counting the Many, the story isn't so simple, and the value of supermajority rules isn't, isn't clear at all. It is certainly true that supermajority rules promote stability of institutions and the norms that are supposed to govern them. There, there's a reason, after all. The U.S. Constitution has been amended only 27 times in 235 years. But Schwartzberg asks, how can we determine which norms are worth stabilizing? Since for any given political community, different institutional arrangements could secure, ensure security of expectations and make ordinary political life possible. Even the set of rights and their scope could vary. Well, you see, again, we're missing the whole point. The federal government was supposed to be so limited and almost unnoticeable outside of commerce and defense that you didn't worry about these things. If everything was still left to the states, you don't have supermajority rules in many states. It's much easier to get things done at the state level. This is the whole point of thinking locally and acting locally. You do more at the state level than you ever can at the federal level. So why do we nationalize everything? How about we don't do that? Do we defer to the wisdom of the framers? What if, in our estimation, they got something critical wrong? And even if they didn't, should the dead hand of the past so strongly outweigh the considerations of the present? Do we defer to wisdom and tradition under the assumption that stability is de facto evidence of consent? Well, that makes him sound very much like a Spooner-type libertarian. And this is where Bowie will say things that people, oh, oh yeah, I mean, this, well, how do we measure consent? Do we defer to wisdom and tradition? <laughs> do we defer to wisdom and tradition under the assumption that stability? So do we, defer to, do we defer to smart people and things that have worked for generations? Because, well, they just are smart and they work for generations. Yep, think about what he just said there. Do we defer to wisdom? No, we'll just defer to stupidity. How about that? <laughs> I mean, it's almost funny the way he says it. He doesn't, I don't even know if he realizes what he just said. But here's where we come to the catch-22. Because the stability of our system rests on supermajority rules so strong that they stymie all but the broadest attempts to change the system. And who is to say that stability is a paramount goal? In a dynamic society, which is to say in a human society promoting stability with little institutional recourse, where reform might ultimately be more disruptive because it creates friction, and thus energy, that will be released one way or another. Again, he's missing the whole problem. It's not the system that's the problem. It's abusing the system that's the problem. Trying to pass unconstitutional legislation. Trying to do things that are, well, illegal. That's the problem. If we had a system of federalism, All these things that these people worry about could be handled at the state and local level. But no, no, no. We can't do that. Because, well, yeah, but what about the Dyer Bill? And he brings it up again. That's his big thing. What about that? What about that? And we know, of course, as I said, there were horrible things going on. It's an unconstitutional piece of federal legislation. And once you do that, and this is what Calhoun actually pointed out in the 1830s, once you pass one piece of unconstitutional legislation because, well, this is necessary, this is good, well, then you can pass anything under that, under that argument. Anything. And you've just destroyed the entire system. What of the claim that supermajority rules, like the filibuster and the ones that structure the constitutional amendment process, promote consensus? Here again, Schwarzberg says we have to think carefully about what that means. If by consensus we mean the aggregate opinions of the community, then there might be a basis for supporting supermajority rules. Although that raises another question. What is the threshold for success? The two-thirds demand for impeachment in the Senate, for example, is essentially arbitrary. Well, I don't disagree with them there. It was a number they came up with. Two-thirds? Well, that was two-thirds of the states to get rid of somebody. Why? Because they didn't want partisanship to dominate getting rid of the president. So it's three fourths of the states threshold for ratifying a constitutional amendment. Well, is that? I mean, yeah, it could be. It could be. It could be hundred percent. If you look at the Articles of Confederation, it was one hundred percent. So they dropped that down to three quarters, thinking, well, you can still have some people holding out, but if it's really important, we'll get it ratified. Was the ERA really important? No. No, it wasn't. If it's a major structural change that's going to help the political system, then that's one thing. But what about the ERA? There's no rational standard to use here, only a feeling that most people want something. In which case, if you want something, if what you want is some some general sense that a specific outcome is what the community or legislative body generally wants, then it's not clear that supermajority rules are the optimal solution. Consider what Schwartzberg calls an acclamatory conception of consensus. In this version, what the community believes is true or prudent is what is willing to let a belief stand as the group's view, even if there is a significant minority that disagrees. So even if there's just a small majority, well, that's that's consensus. A numerical majority. This is what Calhoun talked about in the concurrent majority. Once you go down that path, you're going to have all kinds of abuse of power. Because all you got to do is get a very slim number of people to abuse the rest. Not all Americans may believe, to use Schwartzberg's example, that freedom of the press ought to be unlimited. But they are willing to accept that the view of the United States is, is that Congress should not restrict the ability of newspapers to publish as they see fit. Well, this is true. Congress can't do it, but you know who can? As long as they don't violate the state constitutions of the states... This happened all the time. There were sedition laws. You could have sedition laws in the states. You could have restrictions of speech in the states if the states wanted it, and if it didn't violate the state constitutions. But because we've incorporated, you can't do that anymore. And what do we call speech? I mean, this gets into a whole host of things that people might want to get rid of. As citizens, she writes, they recognize they are are implicated in this view, even if as private individuals they may disagree with it. If what we want out of a decision to remove a president or pass an amendment is acclamatory consensus of this sort, then rather than set a supermajority rule which would permit a minority to preserve a status quo that no longer commands the acclamatory support of the group, what we might use instead, Schwartzberg suggests, is a system that privileges serious and long-term deliberation so that the minority on a particular question feels satisfied enough to consent to the view of a simple majority, even if it still disagrees. So we have, you know, long-term deliberation. We just sit here and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And then eventually, well, the minority is just going to cave. But he doesn't really give any kind of numbers. So what, what, what number should we have? What would be an acceptable number for impeachment? What would be an acceptable number for, say, in amending the Constitution? What would be an acceptable number... For having majority rule. What is that number? He doesn't give you a number. He just says, well, we don't need this. This is where you can just throw bombs and then not really have any repercussions from it. I've given you numbers. I think it should be 60%. Two-thirds is probably too high, but 60%. Now, for ratifying an amendment, I think three-quarters is fine. It's protected the Constitution from a lot of stupidity. It also is hard to get things done that I would even propose. But I think most Americans could be on board for reigning in executive power. You see, the thing is, we propose stupid amendments instead of real amendments. That's the problem. Because we don't really focus on the issues that are really important. As for the question of minority protection for majority tyranny, one of the quirks of nearly all supermajority rules is that they make no distinction between different kinds of minorities. This means that they are likely to protect and strengthen privileged and powerful minorities as they are to empower and defend weak ones. Well, we can't have those rich people having blocks. We can't have people protecting their property having blocks on the system. Looking at the American experience, we see much more of the former than we do of the latter. From the arc of the slave power in antebellum America to the specific case of the dire anti-lynching bill to recent efforts to protect the civil rights of more vulnerable Americans. Again, these are arbitrary things that he's talking about. Though, the civil rights issue. What does that actually mean? What does that actually mean? How do we define that? What does that mean? And again, what about what about enumerated powers? What about delegated, all powers, not delegated? This is the Tenth Amendment. He's ignoring that whole thing. If you have federal power, that's uh, federal legislation that's unconstitutional. Well, you can't do it. That's the whole point. And as anyone in the founding generation thought, there were three things government should do protect life, liberty, and property. And if property is going to be plundered, if you can just get simple majorities to take, you know, 50 plus, 50% plus one to take from the other half their property, well, is that good government? This gets to the most powerful point. Schwartzberg makes about the impact of supermajority rules on democratic life. Democracy, she writes, entails a commitment to the presumption of, uh, I'm sorry, of equality among its citizens. Democracy, she writes, entails a commitment to the presumption of equality among its citizens. Put another way, democracy assumes an equal, equal capacity to judge one's interests, or at least what an individual believes is in his or her interests. This equality is manifested institutionally and formally equal voting power. In a democracy, our political institution should affirm the fact that we are equal. But again, what does that actually mean? He throws this term equal around and then doesn't really define it. What is equal of equality of condition? Equality of income? I mean, what does this actually mean? Everyone still can go vote. If you're over 18, you can go vote. There's nothing that says you can't. So we all have political equality once you're over 18 in the United States. As long as you're not a felon, I mean, some other things. But we have equality of political power. But Bowie doesn't think so. In the United States, ours do not. The rules of the game here tend to elevate the views and judgments of some citizens over others. To the point that under certain circumstances, small factional minorities can rule with no regard for the views of the majority in their communities. Everyone can go vote. Whether it's the supermajority rules of the Senate or the countermajoritarian of the Electoral College and the Supreme Court. Wait a second. The Supreme Court, like I just said, gave us all the ERA anyways. Our system makes it clear that some voices are more equal than others. No. Not really. And the Electoral College, again, all you've got to have is 270 Electoral College votes. That's a simple majority. That's a simple majority of... Enough states where enough people live to get a president elected. It's a simple majority. It's not a massive threshold, it's a simple majority. One might say, even so, that the wisdom of the framers and of past generations holds true. But as Americans struggle against their own counter-majoritarian institutions and supermajoritarian rules to stop the ascendance of a wannabe authoritarian, I am not sure that wisdom holds true, right? So this is a really funny piece, and it gets back into what I was talking about yesterday with secession. Why are Americans angry? Why are more Americans supporting secession? Because of people like Jamel Bowie. Because they don't want to be governed by somebody else in some other state. Or Jamel Bowie can't get other people to do what he wants. So some lefties would say, well, we'll just leave, right? We We can't force our simple majority on you. So we should just leave. That's the point. You see, federal power, unconstitutional federal power, not working within the system, federalism, is the real issue. We have all of these problems, all of this angst, all this energy, as Bowie called it. It's always the rub. All right, see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.